remember when I was young, going on my first Operation Christmas Child trip to South Africa and seeing a blind girl open her shoebox. And all the gifts in her box were soft to the touch and made sound. And it was there that I realized the incredible impact each gift can have on an individual child's life. You want to go put a picture in each box? Now, when I pack a shoebox with my family, I think about the child who received my box. Shoebox gifts can trigger our physical senses, like sight, sound, touch, and smell. These senses play a key role in creating lasting memories for these children. I remember a young man who still recalls the fragrance of soap, and it takes him back to the day he first heard about the love of Jesus. Small musical gifts can help bring light to a child in a dark corner of the world. When a child holds a soft animal or doll, that soft touch can remind them that God truly cares for them. What a child sees can shape and inspire their imagination. And what if our gift gives them the chance to dream? For all of us, our senses help create and recall memories. And a shoebox full of gifts can help a child remember the love of Jesus. So this year, as you pack your box, pray and ask God what he wants you to pack, knowing that your prayer-filled shoebox will help children experience the greatest gift ever, the love of Jesus Christ. So, you've packed your Operation Christmas Child shoebox full of love and prayer. Now... How to get it to the other side of the world, where it can bless a child and become a life-changing gospel opportunity. That starts when you send a $10 suggested donation through our website or through the mail. This ensures the greatest possible impact in the life of a child with a clear presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Your donation helps to cover shoebox collection, processing, and shipping. And it also provides each child with the greatest gift gospel booklet, printed in their own language. This booklet encourages children and their families to receive God's greatest gift, His Son, Jesus Christ. Your $10 suggested donation also helps train and equip local churches on how to lead an outreach event, share the gospel, and invite boys and girls to participate in follow-up discipleship. Plus, when you give online, Using your Follow Your Box label, you can discover the destination of your shoebox gift. And last, but certainly not least, if you have packed all of your boxes using our nifty Build a Shoebox Online website, then your donation is included. The greatest impact, all for $10. To learn more, visit SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. Good morning. Well, as you can see, we are really pushing forward with Operation Christmas Child and, and getting the shoeboxes out. And we've had a, a great opportunity to be able to gather a lot of shoeboxes in the past. Our goal, though, this year is to get 400 from just WCF, um, real boxes, and then maybe 100 online. One of the things that I really did for the first time last year, personally, was uh, doing shoeboxes with my grandkids that... Um, that don't live around here. So in Texas, in the Eugene, we got online and, and, and was able to FaceTime while we selected 
the elements, and they got to pick out online all the things that they wanted to put into the boxes, and then we sent them out that way. So I want to encourage you to, to really think about how you can utilize this ministry and to be able to get the word out. And, you know, it's, it's super cool that we are in Acts and the empowered work of the Holy Spirit in starting the church. We'll talk today in Acts 17 about how Paul was very missional in Athens and what that really looked like. And, and as is our practice, the last Sunday of the month is our Missions Sunday where we kind of take a look at a new missionary every month and we focus on that. Um, that new tomorrow night, that throughout the neighborhoods of South Columbia County, that the word of God would be spread, that as these kids come to the door, that they would be greeted with kindness, that they would be loved on, that they would receive these gifts. Most importantly, they would receive the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. But right now, let's go ahead and let's get ready to worship. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Yeah, as we just focus our hearts in and spend some time before the throne of God. During worship, the ushers will come forward and take the morning offering and, and just all of that. Lord, we would ask that you would have your way with us. Father, we pray that you would continue to lead us by your Spirit. Father, I think of the events of this last week at uh, Marv's Celebration of Life and and Elias is yesterday, and, and, and hearing about uh, Jan Wendling, our missionary, who has gone home to be with you. We pray for Ken. Lord, in all the things that are going on in the busyness of life, may we, may we hit that pause button and just sit before you. Worship you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the living God. As we'll learn today, the difference between living gods and dead gods. We worship a living God because you have created us and you are worthy to be praised. May we do that effectively this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
absolutely amazing just coming to this place and just filling this space and being with us and just being in our hearts. Thank you for giving us the voices to lift up to you, God. Thank you for giving us everything you give us. And we know that through it all, you are there. No matter how big, how small our problems are, we need to put, them, put it on you, God, because you are there. And just thank you for everything that you do for us and every time that you get us through anything tough. You are amazing. And God, just be with Pastor Kerry as he gets us into your word and just help us to get in there with him. And God, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 as we continue Luke's account to Theophilus about the beginnings of the early church. Now, as you're finding your way there, I've got a question for you. How do you explain the color red to a person that was born blind that has never seen color? Think about that. How do you explain the color red to a person that was born blind that has never seen color. You can hand them an apple. They can touch it. They can smell it. They can feel it. They can taste it. And you can give it an attribute and say what you were holding is red. But do they really understand that? No, because color is an unknown concept. For a person that has been born blind that has never seen color. They can touch, they can taste, they can, they can feel, they can get a sensory. They can give intellectual assent that a name or a title has been given to that which they're touching. But they can't have a personal experience. Because that sense of seeing is not present. In fact, the only way for them to see color is for them to have that sight restored. Sharing the gospel is much the same way. Because when you're sharing the gospel of God, who is spirit, those that are spiritually blind, those that are spiritually dead, they can't, they have no concept of that. Because the capacity to be able to experience a living God in spirit is a spiritual capacity. And if you're spiritually dead, then you don't have the capacity to comprehend this God. And so what does man do when he has this desire to know a deity, to know a God, but he can't see a God? What does man do? He creates idols. He'll create images. They will create something that they can see, that they can touch, that they can experience to fill that void of a deity in their life. Man has a God-shaped hole, and he tries all kinds of different things to put into that God-shaped hole. But because because God is spirit, and man creates these idols then what ends up happening is, is the living God gets put off to the side and a polytheistic culture is developed. Do we live in a world today full of idols? Sure, they may not be the icons 
that we'll study today, as in Greece, or if you were our trip, we just got back from Rome and and went into St. Peter's and, and the icons that were there. But icons and, and images are all created to fill the space or fill the void that, that the spiritually dead people have for God. So our society worships all kinds of gods of our own making. Culture is saturated with idols. Saturated with these idols of sports, sex, pleasure, and even self, personal icons. They, they, people worship themselves within this. And, and so within this, we've got to say, well, what does an idol come from? Well, it comes from the thing that you love the most. Anything you love the most becomes an idol and will actually stand in the place of the living God. And, and the thing is, again, natural man doesn't understand spiritual God. We live in a culture and a society that is pluralist, for sure, and, and polytheistic. Because one person's God may not be the same as another person's God. As we read our text this morning, this is the same thing that Paul was encountering as he comes into Athens. We're picking up today as Paul was moving from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, now down to Athens within this. He was, he was on his second missionary trip through Macedonia. When you see Macedonia, that's Greece. And he's making his movement all the way through this area of Macedonia or the Grecian culture. <coughs> Excuse me. And in that, he is experiencing this polytheistic, idolatrous culture because they're, they've been without Yahweh God. Not the Jewish God, monotheistic. They're polytheistic within that. And so within this, he is, he is coming into Athens. Now, Athens, as we'll unpack in a moment... Just keep in mind, was the home of art and culture and philosophy. Athens was the capital of the Grecian Empire, and it was great during the 4th and 5th century B.C. with Alexander the Great and this great empire, but Rome is now ruler. And the Roman Empire is in charge, and the, the Grecian Empire is now fading. Corinth is now the commercial center. Athens is the cultural center full of paganism and idolatry. And I got to thinking, you know, how important is this passage that we're going to study today? It's, many people believe it's the centerpiece of the book of Acts. For Paul, preaching in Athens would be second to preaching in Rome because it's these, these cultural high points that are there. So if he could get the gospel established in Athens and get the gospel established in Rome, he's impacted the two major cities of both empires that existed and by extension impacting many, many people within this. Now, why is he in Athens? Because his life was threatened in all the cities that he had come to. And he left Silas and Timothy up in Berea, but he had to basically run for his life. And so as we work through this passage... A question that I have for you is, how hard is it for you to share the gospel in the pagan culture that you live in, that we live in? And how does it relate to you? Try to, as we work through this passage, consider yourself in the shoes of Paul as he comes in. And to do that, we're going to read through our text this morning. If you'd stand, and, as is our practice, we're going to read through um, verses 16 to 34 and Paul's experience here in Athens. 
And in your mind's eye, picture yourself being Paul in, in all of this as Luke tells this account. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you were proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than the telling or the hearing of something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar that this inscriptions to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. And he made from one man every nation, a mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, and if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by art or through man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Arabagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others within them. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So one of the things that we first find in verse 16 is that the gospel needs to be preached and shared regardless of the cultural challenges. There are places that I do not really particularly want to go to share the gospel. Some places that are so appalling to me that it makes my skin to crawl. I've been in some of those places, and I can't get out of there fast enough. Yet, God calls us to share the gospel. Now, what was going on here? Well, as we see, Paul was waiting in Athens, and he was waiting 
for Timothy and Silas to come. He was in there in the city that used to be great. It was it was the the centerpiece for the Grecian Empire. It was a great city. But now it's a mere shell of what it used to be. Can you imagine that place? Something that people would would want to be around, but it's, it's just not what it used to be. Yet they still have the practices of paganism that is going on. As I said, Corinth was the, the commercial center. Athens, lead cultural intellectual center. And as Paul was walking through the streets, it is said that during the time of Nero, they had more than 30,000 idols lining the streets of the gods, the demigods, and the heroes. Could you imagine for a Jew that believed in the Torah, that said no other gods, that where God, Yahweh, said no idols, and he walks in and he is embedded in, by all of these idols and images that are worshipped by so many people. The appalling thing that, that he would be impacted in within this and, and just how dead it is. And specific to Athens was the worship of the god Hermes, the son of Zeus and Maia. The Romans called Hermes Mercury, who was a demigod, and, and their key god, Hermes, was in charge of escorting the dead, according to their cultural belief, in charge of escorting the dead into Hades. The key god in Athens was a guy that would bring the dead to the dead. Imagine that. You can't get any deader than that. And, and this is where you're at. You're looking at this. Now, again, I've been in some pretty rough places. I grew up in East L.A. and, and, and have been witnessing and did ministry down in Skid Row and, and, and some of those areas. But imagine... God moving you and dropping you off into Skid Row or the streets of San Francisco or Sin City, Las Vegas. Years and years ago, I went to Holland on a mission trip. And we were doing ministry in, in this area called Katwijk on Zee. And it's a, I don't know, it's, it, it's like this resort town that is there. And we did ministry there and... And there, there's another name that I can't even pronounce that talked about Kotvik being on the land and, and whatnot. But we went into um, Amsterdam, into the red light district. And to walk down there, Campus Crusade had a coffee house that was down in the middle of the red light district that was there. And so as we would go, we were visiting this coffee house and it was ministry and the gospel was being presented there. And one of the areas that, that we walked to was a courtyard outside of Medam. Tussauds Wax Museum. And I went into this courtyard area that was there, and there was hundreds of young people that were there on spring break, all getting stoned on, on heroin and pot and all of these things. And then to go and to walk down through this red light district that was there and all the models that were inside the, the windows in their lingerie and such things. And we went into this place where the gospel was being preached every day. Within this, and the ministry of this this coffee house also was to go and and at the end of the evening was to send escorts to those that were in the red light district so that they would escort the women home safely, so that they wouldn't be accosted. A great ministry, but could you imagine that would be the core of your ministry to go 
and to share the gospel in such a place. And, and when you're surrounded by such things, your skin just begins to crawl almost because of the apostasy and the deadness spiritually that is there. Do we have places like that in our country today? We do. Do we have places like that close to us today? We do. And we tend to avoid them. Paul was set in the middle. One of the challenges is how do you share the gospel in such places that are there? Paul was a monotheist as a Jew, which means one God. In a culture that embraced paganism and idolatry. And it says he was provoked. That word provoked means to be greatly distressed in your spirit. Agonized, provoked within this. His view was that any worship other than the worship of God was to worship demons. He says this as he wrote a letter to the church of Corinth, another Grecian city. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says this. As he says to the, the church in Corinth, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharer in demons. In, ba in Paul's ideology, there was only two forms of worship. You either worship the one true God or you're worshiping a demon. They say, well, you're worshiping an idol. Idol's a demon. And he saw that all as being demonic within that. And so what did he do? Well, verse 17 tells us he would do what he normally did. Paul's pattern was to go to the synagogue. And he goes to the synagogue, as was his norm, and he would preach and, and dispute with the Jews and then also the God-fearing Gentiles that were all attending synagogue. But that's not the highlight of his ministry in Athens. Because after Sabbath... In going to the synagogue, where would Paul go? Intentionally to the agora, to the marketplace. Why? Because all life is in the marketplace. We go shopping once a month to Costco. People go shopping every day in Near Eastern cultures. They would go to the market every day and they'd hang out. As we read in the text, even the people would go and just hang out and do nothing but what? Talk. And they would talk about philosophy. Why? Because it was the intellectual center of the world at, at one point in time. And so you have all of this leftover philosophies and such that are there. And so Paul would go to the Agora daily, which really was the center of the Athenian life, and preach Jesus. Why? Because there was an urgency to preach Jesus. Why? Because these people in the Agora didn't know the God of the Bible, the, the Yahweh God. They didn't know the way into salvation. And so he would preach and he, wouldn't, he, he didn't see his time in Athens as time off, but it was a time to work every day. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says this, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Note, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Make the most of your times. What should you be doing tomorrow night? Sharing the gospel. Why? Because you've got the mission field coming to your front door. Share the gospel. Make the most of that time within this. Well, in verses 18 to 21, we see the philosophers challenging Paul. Notice what it says here. It says this, And some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some saying, what would this vain babbler wish to say? Others say, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities 
Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So we need to know who the players are. Who are the Epicureans? The Epicureans were materialists. These were the philosophers that would be more like our naturalists today. The Epicureans believed in the condition that all things pertain to matter and are of matter. In other words, you're, you're well, I hate to say it, but you're all a big dirt clod. You all have a matter. I mean, you, you, you came out of something. And so these would be more like the evolutionists. The, the people that, that you started with a, a, a substance of some kind within this. And so that all things became matter, and they would believe that there is no life apart from matter. And so within that, they really didn't believe in the whole spiritual realm per se. But as long as, as you were in a body, you were alive, and once there was body, there was no life outside of the body or outside of the matter. Their view of gods was this. They believed maybe gods might exist, but these gods, they really don't care about the human condition. They exist in... If, if you want to believe in God, go ahead and believe in God. But they really don't intersect with our life today. Do we see that kind of thinking in, in our world today? For sure we do. The evolutionists, the scientists that, that are, are into all of this... That there is no life or no existence beyond matter and there is no eternal life. The challenging thing about the Epicureans is that they believed that man's highest good, the greatest thing that you could do for your life is feel good. Personal pleasure is man's highest goal. Now I want you to think what that looks like when you follow that philosophy. If the greatest experience in your life is feeling good about yourself, and your whole goal in life is to make yourself feel good, well, that's the basis of hedonism. And we look at that, and, 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 and do we see that in our world today? Absolutely. People pursue my pleasure and highest good over the needs of others. Stoics, on the other hand, they were pantheists. They, they more or less believe that God is in everything. The rock is a God, the tree is a God, the bird is a God, the, the sea lions are God, the seals are gods. I'd like to shoot a couple of those gods, but that's another story. Everything is a God. And they did believe in a soul but that there is nothing material that, that actually exists after death. And so, yeah, there, there's a soul, and then when you die, the soul just goes off and is somewhere. But they believe that man reaches their highest potential when they live by reason. These would be the people that pursue intellectual logic, higher learning. And the more you know, the more you're achieving your, your, your good. Self-sufficiency is the, is, is the pinnacle. Both parties reject a physical resurrection. And Paul is in the Agora preaching who? Jesus and a bodily resurrection. He is preaching monotheism, 
which is in conflict with everything that they culturally know. And they don't have a clue. They call Paul a vain babbler. Vain babbler in that word in Greek literally means a seed picker. It's a, it's a derogatory term. It says, this Paul, he's nothing but a bird in a barnyard picking up seeds off the ground. Picking up the ideas of all of these different people, and he doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's just babbling. He, 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 he is stupid. Ignorant. Because we're Greeks, and we're cultured, and we're in the know. Do people believe that Christianity, that the gospel and the word of God is foolishness? Sure they do. That you believe in one God? And that He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? That you're a sinner? And that you cannot do good enough in order to please this God? But what you can do is ask this Jesus to, to forgive you of your sins as He died on the cross for them and put your faith and trust in Him for eternal life. To the world, they say, that's foolishness. I'm master of my own destiny. I'm in charge of my own view, and you know what? Live fast, die young, and party hard. That's kind of the whole motto of the world today. They don't understand the color red. They can't see. They don't understand God. They can't see. So they debated Paul in the marketplace. They made fun of him. They said, well, who is this new God? And so what did they do? They took Paul out of the marketplace, which was down at the bottom of the hill, of a hill called Mars Hill, and they took him up to the hill of the gods, the Areopagus. And, and upon this hill were, were all of these idols or monuments that were built to all of these gods that were there and said, we will meet with you up on the hill and we'll have a discussion. Within this, we know that this Mars Hill was called Mars Hill, or literally the hills of Ares. Ares is the Roman god for war. And so they named this hill the Hill of Ares, which was the premier place. So you would come out of the Agora and go up on top of this hill that overlooked the whole city, where all of these things that were there. And Areopagus was also not just a place, but there was a council there. How do we know there was a council? Because in verse 24, we know that Dionysus was a member of that council that ends up coming to faith. So what was Paul being put on? Trial. Where? In the hill of the gods, Mars Hill. And it, it was the place where all the Athenians would evaluate these new teachings. They prided themselves as intellectuals. We're open to all kinds of new teaching. We want to hear this new teaching. But we'll only accept it if it lines up with our presupposition. Don't we see that today? We're open to conversation about people of faith as long as it doesn't contradict what we already believe. We're open to Christians coming into public schools to help us out. Just don't talk about Jesus. Do we see that? It is no different from Paul's day to our day. People that, that pride themselves about being open to new ideas, but close to the gospel. 
because they're blind and the God of this world has blinded their eyes. So Paul is hauled up here and he wants to explain the unknown God to these people so that they would know God. How do you explain that which is unknown to people that don't know? Well, you've got to begin with where they're at. So, and so he makes it a point to explain to the spiritually ignorant who God is in a way that they can comprehend. So he starts out and he addresses the council in verses 22 to 23. And this whole section, 22 to 31, is, it's known as a chiastic. And so there, there's, a, there's actually a method to a sermon outline that he does. But in 22 to 23, Paul stands in the midst of the Areopagus and says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. Now, this is a kind way of, of, of addressing the people. In these ten verses, he works through a message. And he addresses them in a manner that they can understand, not offensively. He doesn't go up there and say, you are nothing but a bunch of heathens that don't know anything. He doesn't do that. But what he does is he acknowledges an attribute about them. He says, I perceive, I see that you are religious. Or more specifically, superstitious. But he uses the word religious. Why? Because it is their religion about believing in these false gods. He doesn't degrade their spirituality within this. But he doesn't also condone it. He gives this, this observation that you're very religious. And they were. But it, they were very superstitious and religious about their superstitions. And so he finds this common place to, to, to launch the message within this. By the way, by saying I observe that you're very religious implies something. What does it imply? That you could be very religious and be spiritually dead. I observe you're very religious. Have you ever talked with somebody? Do you, do you, know, do you know who God? Yeah, I go to church. Do, how, are you, how are you spiritually? Well, I'm very religious. So here's the next question. Who is Jesus to you? Because that answer can only be given if you have a relationship with him. But a lot of people will deflect and say, well, I'm religious. Great. What tree are you worshiping today? Now, Paul looks for something. What does he look for? When you're sharing the gospel, look for the connection point. All of these idols, 30,000, as Paul's walking through, and he recognizes an altar that is up on top of this mountain. And on this altar, it's a flat altar, there's no image on it, and it says, to the unknown God. What does he do? I'm not going to talk about all of these other idols. I'm going to talk about the unknown God. Let me introduce to you the unknown God. Let me speak to this unknown God. Now, who's the unknown God? In the Greek culture, they had determined with their polytheistic that they had all of these gods and they wanted to cover their bases. So what they did was they created an altar to the unknown God. If perchance that they missed one of the gods that were there, they wouldn't make that God mad and bring curse upon them. So the unknown God is the catch-all in their mind for all of the other gods that they just don't know about yet. 
But in the Greek, in the original language, Paul says, let me tell you about the definite article, which means singular, the unknown God. Not a unknown God. And so he, he reaches out and he says, let me tell you about this unknown God. And he says, what you worship in ignorance, and they were worshiping this unknown God, what you worship in ignorance, I'm going to proclaim to you. The unbeliever worships objects and ideas in ignorance because they don't know the living God. Bless their hearts, they don't know the living God. And so the challenge of the, the Stoics and Epicureans, who were very proud of their wisdom, are saying, you know more than us? Which would challenge them. So Paul begins to explain, how do you explain the unknown God? Well, Paul didn't begin by quoting Scripture. Where did Paul begin? Well, the best place to begin, creation. He started with the Creator. Why? Because it was the commonplace. The existence and the and the the existence of a creator within this. And he starts out with his message in verses twenty four and twenty five. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, the God uh, all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands. In other words, let me tell you about God the Creator. That created the whole world and the word world there is cosmos, which means everything, not just the earth, not just mankind, but everything. Now, the Epicureans who believed in matter believed the matter was there. But how did that matter come into form? Well, they say energy. Well, who created the energy? And who created all of these things? And so he begins with the concept of creation. The God that created all of these Isaiah 42, 5 says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to people on it, and the spirit who, it, to those who walk in it. You want to start with somebody and speak to them about God? Don't quote New Testament Scripture. Because they don't know it. Begin with creation. How do you think you were made? Who made you? Start there. The single sovereign creator. Now this challenges the concept of the naturalist and the pantheist. That there is one creator, one God. And note he says this God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. Now again, for the Grecian culture that would have blown their mind because they had great temples. They believed that they had to build a house for their God. You mean there's a God? That is bigger than the house I built for him? Absolutely. And that would mean that he is omnipresent, which is greater than all of these things. This God, the God, is higher than all of these gods. First Kings chapter 8, 27 says, But will God dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built? Because when David had built the temple, and Solomon, or Solomon had built the temple, David wanted to build a temple, and he says, God says, well, I don't dwell in these houses, and Solomon would build a temple. He says, well, you built a house. You think it's really going to hold me? No. Paul moved on to the next thing. He says, this God, the God, is providential and sovereign over everything. 
they had multiple gods that had different job descriptions. Well, let me tell you about the God that is over all of the things in this world. And what does he do? He determines God's or man's life, his location, where he lives. He controls the epics, the seasons, the times. He controls everything, the past, the present, and the future. God is sovereign over all. Share God with people. The God that is sovereign over all, the God that is the creator. Why? Because he is sovereign. You are where you are because God has called you to be in that place. Now, the response to this should be that man has a natural desire to seek him. Do we see that? Yes. How do we know that? Because they made idols. People have a natural desire to meet their creator, to to know this, and they seek this out. So Paul goes in, but he says the problem is because you're spiritually unregenerated, you're going to feel around and grope around in the dark, looking to find your God. And not finding your God, but you're hoping to find your God. This God didn't work that you made, so you made another, and you made another, and you made another. Do we live in a world like that today? Absolutely. Absolutely. People move from God to God to thing to thing in hopes that they would find the one true God. But we have a God that wants to be known. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Because we have a God that will be found. And then he explains the way to know God. Verses 28 to 29. For in him we live and move and exist. Even in some of your own poets it said, for we are his children. It's interesting to note that Paul quotes their poets, which means Paul knew their poetry and their, their education. He was an educated man, and he says, we're children of the gods. The God, not the gods within this. These Greeks believed that they were born of God, which would make them eventually a god. Are there people today that believe that they are God's children and eventually will become a God? Sure there is. But no. We are children of God, but we are created in His image. We are image bearers. There is only one that is born of God, begotten of God, and His name is Jesus Christ. The Son of God. But we are image bearers. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in His own image. And the image of God created a male and female He created them, male and female. That's how He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and the sky, and over every living thing on the earth. As the image bearer, we are made in the image of God. We do not have sovereign ability to make a God. Think about this. Does the creation uh, of God have the ability to make a God? No, that's foolishness. And God would warn even the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 4.28, beware of making these gods there. He says, and in that land, talking about when they get into the land and they return their way, he says, there you will serve the gods and work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor smell. We have this propensity when we fall away from God, we fall into the hands of idols within this. Finally, what Paul says in verses 30 and 31, 
God explains God's, or Paul explains God's mercy. Notice what he says in verse 30. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Is there a time in your life when you were ignorant of God? Yes. When are you no longer ignorant of God? When you hear the gospel. Now you're accountable. God's mercy says, look it. Paul is saying, you didn't know the gospel, Gentiles. But now you do. And what comes with that? Accountability. Holding us accountable for that which we know. We didn't know that we were a sinner until we were told that we were sinners and, and confirmed by the law. But then we will, be, we will be held accountable. Now what happens in that? You will be held accountable for what you know. And how you respond to that knowledge. And if you choose to reject that information, that's on you. We read about it in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. It says, Then these kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains, to the rocks, Fall on us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? There is going to come a day when all of these people that proclaim themselves as being greater than God are all going to say, please let the mountains fall on us now. Because we stand in judgment. It would be better to, to die in a landslide than stand before the Lamb of God. Question, will that still keep you from judgment? No. There is a day of accounting. Now, these polytheists, they didn't accept the word. And understand that when you share the gospel, some people will mock you and some people will believe. Should the outcome of your testimony, should the outcome of your witness stop you from witnessing? No. You share the gospel and leave the results to God. Notice what happens. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, they were good until that point. They began to sneer. Why? Because it didn't fit their presupposition. And they said this, we'll hear you again later. They deflect. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this later. Why? Because you're getting too close. Within this, Paul would write to the church in Corinth again, who were Greeks, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 20, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. That is, that's, that's a sermon on itself. That, that phrase, being saved, it's a powerful statement. Being saved is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness of wisdom of this world? I love the fact that God is going to shut these smart people up. But what ends up happening in Paul's ministry? says, some men joined and believed, among whom was Dionysus, the Aragobite, and a woman named Damaris. What's interesting to me is you don't see Paul ever address the church that is in Athens, do you? No. A church is not established there. But people are still saved. 
and some of the council that was there. So what does that mean for us? We live in a godless culture. We live in a society that has rejected the truth, that do not worship the living God. But we live in a society where many don't worship the living God because they don't even know the living God. Because their eyes are closed. And it is our job, our role as believers to be missional and present the gospel. And let God have the results. So how should we do this? Preach the gospel everywhere, regardless of the the culture that you're in. Explain God to the spiritually ignorant so that they can understand, in a way they can understand. And even though many will mock your message, some may believe. And that's up to God. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've called us to share the gospel. Like Paul, may we be bold in presenting the gospel in a way that people can understand. May we comprehend the breadth and the height, the width and the depth of the gospel and the power of God unto salvation through the gospel. Lord, may we share Jesus. We know that some are going to reject that message. Others are going to accept, Lord, you know who those are. Our job is to deliver the message. May we be faithful. And like Paul, continue on in that mission that you've called us to. Lord, may we not trust in our own understanding, but lean upon you in all our ways and acknowledge you every day of our life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, we do trust in you. Lord, we know that anything that is eternal, that's going to happen, it has to happen from you. May we be faithful in the work that you've called us to and be missional in the place that you've placed us. And may everything that we say and do lead people to you, Lord Jesus. May you do that work. Have your way with us this day. And may everything we say and do make you smile. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed day. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.